This is Interviews, a podcast from the National Academy of Sciences that provides first-person accounts of the lives and work of Academy members. In this series of one-on-one conversations, scientists talk about what inspired them to pursue the careers they chose and describe some of the most fascinating aspects of their research. Ralph Cicerone, president of the National Academy of Sciences, is an atmospheric scientist whose research in atmospheric chemistry and climate change has involved him in shaping science and environmental policy at the highest levels, nationally and internationally. His work with Richard Stolarski in 1973 led to the discovery of the C10X chain mechanism for depletion and stratospheric ozone, and Cicerone's research has continued since then in atmospheric chemistry and climate change. Dr. Cicerone was the Chancellor of the University of California, Irvine, when this interview was recorded. He began his second term as President of the National Academy of Sciences in July 2011. Were you interested in science as a child? Not a great deal. I think probably compared to most members of NAS, I was not. I developed some interests on my own, but for the most part, I was interested in sports. That was my big thing. And you grew up in Pennsylvania? Western Pennsylvania. It's, a, it's an area of the country that's very sports crazy, I suppose, like many parts of the United States. Um, but this has never wavered in Western Pennsylvania. It's still that case, and the educational system's probably not as good as it should be. So it took me a, a long time before I became really interested in science. Were any family members involved in the sciences? No, the closest thing to it was that my father had to go out a lot at nights and he used to leave me arithmetic problems to work on just for the fun of it. That was probably the only extra stimulation I got there. I had a very large, wonderful family with aunts and uncles especially, but no one in the family had ever gone to college except for one distant relative. So I really didn't know what I was getting into with higher education. Your initial studies, though, were electrical engineering, right? Right. The whole idea of going to college from where I came from was to be able to get a job because Western Pennsylvania also has a lot of chronic unemployment, and I hope it's improving these days. But from my background and what I was interested in, the idea of getting a college degree was, frankly, to be able to get a job that wouldn't be subjected to the cycles of unemployment and layoffs. And engineering just seemed like the thing to do. I liked mathematics and... uh, did reasonably well in high school. And then also, you have to remember that Sputnik had gone up just as I was entering high school. So the whole nation was very much concerned and aware that maybe we'd better work hard to get an edge in, to get an advantage in science and engineering and mathematics. So those forces came together. So I went off to become an engineer, and I was very fortunate to get a scholarship to go to MIT, which of course I had only heard about and uh, had never visited. I think it was partly because of my golf scores, actually. The interviewers from a a scholar, from from an MIT group in Pittsburgh, uh, seemed more interested in the fact that I had been a pretty good high school golfer and football player and basketball player than anything else. So I think that gave me the advantage over some other fantastic high school students who wanted that same scholarship. It seems that Sputnik was such a great incentive, the competition that was engendered by Sputnik, for so many people to go into science, and there was such a great mass of people that went in at that period. It's almost as if we need something like that now to get kids interested. There's no real analog to that in this day and age. Yeah, I thought a lot about this. See, today, some of the motivations that were there for people my age and older are gone. For example, 
when you used to have these vinyl records to play music, you had to clean the needle on the phonograph. You had to keep the vinyl disc clean. Of course, you couldn't break it. And the point is, at least you had to do something to maintain and improve the quality of the music. Today, you can go down to any electronics store, walk out with a beautiful stereo set, plug it in, it works the first time, it always works, you get great music, and it never breaks. And if it does break, there's no way you can fix it. Similarly with tuning cars. We used to have to know how to tune a car engine, automobile engine. We used to have to know how to set the gaps on a spark plug, keep them clean, uh, clean the condenser, set the timing, and so forth. Now, even if you are interested in how a car engine works, there's nothing you can do because everything is sealed and can only be diagnosed by a certain set of diagnostic equipment that's driven by high-tech computers and so forth. So some of the motivation that people used to have to know how things work is gone. We used to even have to know how to fix watches and radios. We had to replace tubes in radios. Now, if a radio breaks, you throw it away and get a new one and so forth. Well, with Sputnik flying over our head, we could hear the beep that was being recorded by receivers and then replayed. So there was this ominous object flying above us, uh, controlled by these enemies of the United States at the time. And not that anybody thought that we were going to be attacked immediately because of Sputnik, but it was ominous. So there's a sense so of disconnect all around, right? Well, the positive motivation, many ex I can give many more examples of the kinds of forces we used to have, attractive forces towards learning how things work, are removed. And in this case, the perceived threat of Sputnik is also removed. So I think there's less reason tangible for people to understand how things work. Of course, some people, beautiful minds, still have a natural curiosity. And you never know what's going to turn on a human mind. So I'm not saying that all motivations are gone because we still have people doing wonderful kinds of explorations all the time. But this disconnect between the objects and our knowing how to fix them, how to maintain them, is partially due, in fact, to technological advances, I guess. I mean, That's right. So there's sort of a... A really down-home example would be drinking water. I mean, just think how many generations ago it was that humans had to draw their own water from a local well or river and every drop of water they used, they had carried and maybe had to filter or clean at one point. Now, in a typical city of, say, 100,000 people, I've looked into this, there aren't more than five or six people who even know what's in the water treatment plant and how it works. So, again, science and technology have made life easier, but have taken away from us some of the ways that humans used to learn about things and have to master problems. I'm hearing a little bit the connection between the electrical engineering and getting into more environmental concerns here. I mean, you're, you're talking, in the, I guess the water treatment is sort of an intermediary step there because it has the technology. No, I think my awareness of the environment came very late. And I really like mathematics, too, just for its own sake, so that I haven't always been driven by practical problems. For example, in high school, I was not a very conscientious student. I didn't like to do homework, and I, I avoided it any way I could, so I had a math teacher who developed a system of penalties that if an assignment, let's say, was worth 10 points and I didn't turn it in, my score for the whole semester would go down 10 points instead of getting a zero. And if I didn't turn in two assignments, she would square it, so it would be 10 squared, so I'd be minus 100. I went into the final exam down negative several million points, and she told me I was going to fail a course in 10th or 11th grade and 
I said, well, can't you at least let me take the final exam and see how I do? So she eventually agreed, but uh, did not allow me to use the trigonometric tables or the logarithmic tables. So I had to develop ways to figure out numbers without using tables or slide rule in those days. So I developed a way to do a lot of numerical calculations in my head that still stay with me. Squares and cubes of numbers and logarithms and trigonometric functions. So you never know what's going to make a mind go in a certain direction. So electrical engineering, going back to college then, was very mathematical and I loved it. I loved the kind of mathematical approach to analyzing nature and how things work. And that led me more into some physics. So by the time I left MIT, I had become a good student, although at first I, I had a hard time. I had become a pretty good student and was very interested in physics. And from there it's more towards the environment. You went from there to University of Illinois? Mm -hmm. I did that because my senior year at MIT I had to do a, a senior research project which I ended up putting an enormous amount of time into in a subject called plasma physics. I loved it because it, it all of a sudden brought everything together, mathematics and statistical mechanics, classical mechanics, how particles move, and of course electromagnetic field theory which I really liked, and kinetic theory. So. At the time, there were not that many really top graduate programs in plasma physics in the United States. It had been held out as a source of new energy, nuclear fusion energy, through plasmas, and it was just starting to go into decline. Namely, people realized it was going to be very hard to saddle and harness nuclear energy in a safe way. Nonetheless, there were five or six good programs, and I, was, I liked the one at Illinois because it combined electrical engineering and physics, whereas the other top programs at the time seemed to be located in one field or another. So you gave a great deal of thought to this before you moved then? And I visited a couple of graduate programs. This time I was a little bit more sophisticated in choosing my university. I still was not at all aware of what a career in academic science would be. In fact, I thought I would only go to get a master's degree. My goal for graduate school was a master's degree. I had some really nice job offers coming out of MIT with a bachelor's degree, but strangely enough I didn't feel ready to go out into the professional world yet. I knew I had learned an awful lot at MIT and I had had some great experiences there again with sports and made many friends but I felt that I needed a master's degree to get better prepared so I was told I would be admitted to MIT if I wanted to stay in graduate school but I, I looked for this program in plasma physics and found it to be really good at Illinois and went there really thinking I would stop after a master's degree. Then I began to become more aware of what a doctorate meant and it could lead to career in research and teaching. So I decided to take the doctoral exam once. I decided firmly that if I failed that exam, the qualifying exam, I would leave and not sit around studying anymore. But fortunately I passed and just stayed on and finished a PhD at Illinois in electrical engineering with a minor in physics. I took, I would say, most of my graduate courses in physics, about half and half physics and electrical engineering. It sounds as though you enjoy studying and learning. I do now but all the way through probably until my senior year at MIT I wasn't that totally enthusiastic about studying and learning. I saw it as something useful and requirements I had to satisfy but my attitude towards science has become more pro-science as I got older. Rather than being a child who did science fairs all the time and thought about nothing else, I was more the opposite. I was interested in sports, being kind of a normal kid doing what I had to in school to get by, 
thinking about getting a job, but as I moved along and I began to see and penetrate what science and mathematics are all about, I've become just more enthusiastic all the time. So that now as I get older, I feel totally enthusiastic and, and enjoy studying and learning on my own and I love to see other people do it. You mentioned that curious mind, you never know what will catch their fancy and get them going. Do you feel that if the person has this disposition, they'll find something? Are there curious minds out there that never find their place and never develop? That's a frightening question. I think the answer is yes. I think it's similar to what a parent goes through in trying to figure out how to stimulate their children or what interests to support and which interests not to support. But I and my wife and most of our friends think that you pretty much have to go with whatever the child wants. That is, if a child shows some interest in music, no matter what it is, you try to indulge it. Let them go as far as they can. If they're interested in hiking or dinosaurs, how things work, and you hope that when a child blunders across something that seems to interest them, that there's somebody on the scene, a relative or a parent or a friend, who can help them to take a step further. I'm sure there are a lot of people who never are encouraged, and that's a real shame. But your own experience was that of parents that supported your choices? Oh, very much. Mm -hmm. They weren't highly educated, of course, but they encouraged me all the way. And I can still remember my father setting me these mathematics problems he, before he went to work at, at night and then making sure that I had done them when he came home. And in fact, I can remember a way that it helped me. Somewhere along sixth or seventh grade, the school districts in those days used to administer standardized tests, IQ tests, placement tests. And I can remember a couple of times where I was off the charts only because my father had inadvertently given me problems that were way beyond the grade level that I had to figure out or he helped me to figure out. Back to your PhD time, what particular projects were you working on at that point? This begins to set my direction now. I had to be paid. I borrowed a lot of money to get through college and then also in graduate school. So somewhat my course was set by a research project that could pay me to be a research assistant, a half-time employee at the University of Illinois. And I ended up working in a laboratory that studied the Earth's ionosphere. That's a thin region of the very, very upper reaches of the atmosphere where the air is very thin and it's partly ionized. That is, the action of the sun and some energetic particles from outer space bombard the air molecules and strip some of the electrons off to create this partly ionized electrically conducting layer in the upper atmosphere. And the ionosphere used to be very important for us. Before communication satellites were flown in the late 1960s, the only way that we could communicate, like with radio waves, between, say, the northern hemisphere let's say Boston, and the Southern Hemisphere, let's say Australia, was by bouncing radio waves off of the ionosphere. Now when I say we, that means anybody trying to talk to another person, or the military trying to run its operations, or the warning of some emergency, whatever. So the ionosphere used to be extremely important for commerce, and for military, and just civil communication. Otherwise, it was uh, sending a piece of paper by ship or airplane. Now that we have communication satellites beaming at all angles from the Earth, it's no longer needed. So the study of the ionosphere was really important. People were always trying to figure out what it was that caused it to ebb and flow in its intensity, why radio waves would fade, 
and sometimes you would hear hiss on your radio receiver or your ham radio setup and that began to get me aware of the fact that we have this atmosphere around us. Surprisingly little was known about the air that we were breathing. So while I continued to study the ionosphere throughout graduate school, we used high-powered radars and we also did some theoretical calculations, writing down equations that seemed to govern how the upper reaches of the atmosphere and the ionized particles behaved and then trying to compare the results of what we would calculate with what the radar would measure, I began to get a little bit of understanding of the air that was lying beneath the ionosphere, namely the air that we breathe. So after graduate school, I decided to take a job in research, a very poorly paid job called a postdoctoral researcher. We have thousands of postdoctoral researchers in the United States at any one time who get paid probably far less than a person with a bachelor's degree in the same field would get, say, working for a company or a government agency. But the postdoctoral research opportunity is meant to be temporary as a stepping stone to some other kind of career. So I decided to take it and went to the University of Michigan where there were a group of researchers studying the ionosphere, the ionospheres of other planets, and related things. And at the same time, I was developing an interest in the ozone layer of the Earth's atmosphere. So this is where all the interest in the Earth comes in the environment? Well, during those years, too, I was in college and graduate school during a large part of the Vietnam War, and uh, it was a rough time because I think a lot of people really began to understand that individuals in a democracy had to be involved, and there wasn't somebody there to take care of everything for us. And the environment was an example. The first Earth Day was held, I think, in 1970, where there were early signs of certain global environmental problems, although they were very poorly defined, that made us all aware of some potential threats. The other driving force was that the world's population had grown dramatically. In the late 60s, there was a very famous book written by Paul Ehrlich and Ann Ehrlich called The Population Bomb. Nowadays, people look back and say, well, they were, their numbers were wrong. I've always thought since then that Yes, fortunately, the rate of increase of population has slowed down, but it was partly because of that book, rather than the book being wrong. At any rate, all of these forces coming together, largely population and food needs, and concern about whether the planet could provide all the food necessary, made us aware of environmental issues. And in my case, I began to think about what the atmosphere was doing for us, not the far reaches of the atmosphere, the ionosphere, but the air down below, and it turned out surprisingly little was known. People were just beginning to realize that what's called the ozone layer, again in the fairly high atmosphere, 15 to 30 miles above the Earth's surface, was almost solely responsible for protecting us from dangerous ultraviolet light that comes from the sun. That was becoming pretty well known, the measurements were showing it, but the role of ultraviolet light in causing skin cancer in light-skinned people was not very well understood then. There were certainly concerns, but very little quantitative data, very little understanding of how, say, certain kinds of rodents or light-skinned people develop skin cancer due to ultraviolet light. All of these things were starting to be come together, so it was natural to ask, what is controlling the ozone layer? What is it that causes the ozone layer to form? And then what forces in nature destroy ozone naturally? And then what forces released by humans could also destroy ozone. There was a great deal of consciousness developing then, and I was not involved in the first wave of that research, which was concerned about uh, 
the future fleet of supersonic aircraft that was someday going to be built that would fly in the ozone layer. Well, it turned out that those aircraft, there were supposed to be 500 of them flying simultaneously right in the middle of the ozone layer. Well, what ended up happening years later was only 12 or 13 of those 500 aircraft were ever built, and they flew at lower altitudes, not in the middle of the ozone layer. So the big threat to the ozone layer never really came about. In the meantime, another chemical was identified as potentially harmful to the ozone layer, namely chlorine, and that's where we, we became involved. And so I began then to study chemistry on my own, to make up for all the chemistry courses I hadn't taken when I was in college or graduate school. But fortunately, the fantastic background from MIT, all the mathematics and physics I had studied there, I'd only had one course in chemistry. And then in graduate school, studying plasma physics, which is really like physical chemistry, I was able to get up to speed fairly fast. And this is while you were at Michigan? While still? I was at Michigan. It was a luxury being a postdoctoral researcher and then a research staff member at Michigan. Some people think it was very risky because my entire salary, all of my income came from competitive grants, what researchers call soft money. To me it was a luxury. Uh, even at the time I, I realized that it was a privilege, although the typical view of researchers working on soft money was, well, we're treated like second-class citizens compared to the faculty at a university, and that was definitely true. And there were times when I felt put upon or underprivileged, but for the most part, I realized what a fantastic advantage it was for me to be able to do whatever I wanted and to get somebody to pay for it, like the National Science Foundation or NASA was able to fund our research. It was always kind of hand-to-mouth in terms of keeping the grants going, but but in this way, we were able to step out in front, and I had a couple of great colleagues at Michigan. We turned learning into a very social enterprise, helping each other to understand things which many other people had already understood, but it was new to us. And then eventually, we were able to make a breakthrough. You had a fruitful collaboration with one of your colleagues at Michigan, Rich Talarski, I believe. Colleague and great friend, an extremely smart and generous person. I especially had a vague feeling that I wanted to apply science towards understanding the environment and making our practices sustainable for future generations. That's really what was in my mind. But it was vague in the sense that I was really not an environmental scientist. Certainly in chemistry, I didn't know what I was doing. So we began to look at a proposed new activity that seemed like somebody better look at it, and that was the space shuttle operations of NASA. I don't remember exactly how we found out. I think it was a physics professor at Michigan who pointed out to us that NASA was proposing to create an entire fleet of large rockets to service the so-called space shuttle. And there was one plan by which there would be three space shuttle launches per day, not three per year or five per year, as turned out to be the case. Three per day, like a thousand a year. So we did some arithmetic and realized that each launch would release 100,000 kilograms, I think it was, of hydrogen chloride gas in the lower atmosphere, and then another 100,000 kilograms of hydrogen chloride gas in the stratosphere where the ozone layer is. So Rich Delarski and I asked ourselves, well, what in the world does chlorine do in the ozone layer? I had remembered some laboratories working with chlorine-containing compounds in my freshman chemistry course at MIT I felt like it wouldn't be impossible, it would not be impossible to map out what chlorine would do in the ozone layer. 
and we stumbled across some research papers from the 1930s that had terribly old papers that had shown that in a laboratory setting chlorine could destroy ozone. We realized that these experiments were not totally relevant, but they whetted our appetite, and we eventually mapped out a series of chemical reactions, very simple chemical reactions, with atoms and small molecules like oxygen and ozone and oxygen diatomic molecules that would lead to chain reaction destroying ozone. Well, what really turned out to be funny months later is we realized we had taught ourselves what a catalytic chain is when, in fact, an undergraduate chemistry student would have been taught what a catalytic chain was maybe second year of chemistry, and neither Rich or I had taken second year of chemistry. So together we rediscovered what catalysis was, and that was fun. Good way to confirm it. Well, it was great because it's something that I think people should enjoy. Discovering something for themselves is a real joy, even if somebody has already discovered it. So in this case, we discovered catalysis. But of course, it was not a discovery. Everybody else already knew what a catalytic chain reaction was. So we then decided to publish our results, and that unleashed a big furor, because many people had pinned their hopes on building a space shuttle and using it to enable all of NASA's and the United States' agenda towards space exploration, and even remote sensing of the Earth looking inward at the Earth rather than looking outward. And here we were saying that the space shuttle would be threatening to the ozone layer. Well, just about the time that we were starting to quantify how big a threat that would be, that is how many space shuttle launches per day or per month and what the effect would be on the ozone layer, a much larger issue came along due to Mario Molina and Sherry Rowland. Namely, independently, they realized that there was already a human activity underway not a proposed one, like a future fleet of space shuttles, but something that had been going on for years, namely the inadvertent release of chlorofluorocarbon gases into the air from our aerosol spray cans and from refrigeration and air conditioning units around the world. The second step would be after the release of those gases, these chlorofluorocarbons that had been synthetically produced by humans precisely to be virtually inert molecules that there was one path in nature that would destroy and tear apart these molecules that had not been foreseen. Namely, after these gases would drift upwards in the air above the ozone layer, they would be exposed to ultraviolet light, which is not present at the surface of the planet, and they would be torn apart, releasing chlorine atoms. And Mario and Sherry had the tremendous insight to not stop there, but to try to figure out what would happen to the chlorine atoms. They were originally just concerned with what happens to the chlorofluorocarbons, but they decided to be really good scientific detectives and follow the chain all the way through, and they independently discovered what we had discovered a few months earlier, that chlorine atoms would destroy ozone at a rate that the incoming sunlight would adjust to, but we would end up with a lower amount of ozone in the upper atmosphere. This was not very well quantified at first, but it was clear that the chlorofluorocarbon release would probably put 100 to 500 times more chlorine in the ozone layer than the space shuttles ever would. So immediately, the few scientists who had been following us looking at the space shuttle effects switched horses and said, oh my god, we've got a real problem on our hands. Space shuttle's never going to be that important, but these chlorofluorocarbons are. Existing problems. An existing problem. Not only existing, but these chlorofluorocarbons had been such a success that the production and sales of the compounds were doubling, I think it was every four or five 
eight years, whatever it was, say five years, so that there was an exponential growth of the chlorofluorocarbon industry underway. They were so successful as aerosol spray can propellants and the most efficient and safe refrigerant gases ever used that not only was their release continuing, but it was growing with time. I'm guessing this is not maybe the first time, but the setting the stage for the tussle between industry and science. It was, and there were all the ingredients. There were scientific unknowns. In this case, an entirely new field of science was created called atmospheric chemistry. What people may have thought was atmospheric chemistry up until that time really had very little chemistry in it. It was following radioactive particles through the atmosphere, largely radiation produced by bomb testing. But now we really had to get into the chemistry of the atmosphere, precisely and accurately understand how far does sunlight penetrate into the air, wavelength by wavelength, what is the impact on each of the molecules and all the different gases in the air when they absorb that ultraviolet and visible radiation, what are the chemical reactions that occur between each of those fragments, and in the case of a chain reaction, what is the chain termination step? What that usually involves is a fragment of a molecule or even a molecule itself with an odd number of electrons and the chain termination reaction will involve the interaction of two such species so that the stable compound that, that terminates the chain, so to speak, is now a more inert or less reactive compound. None of that had been mapped out. The spectroscopy of many of these molecules was unclear and that of course means the way that the molecule interacts with electromagnetic radiation like ultraviolet light wasn't mapped out very well. So there were all of these unknowns. The precise rate at which the chlorofluorocarbon gases mixed into the atmosphere was not known. And there were, of course, natural skeptics and paid skeptics who intervened and said, well, you know, these chlorofluorocarbons are heavier than air. How could they possibly even get into the ozone layer? You people are crazy. And the original calculations of Molina and Rowland turned out to be accurate, even though they were highly parameterized, that is, they did not go from basic physics. But there were some observations against which the calculations could be checked, and, and we did our share of those too. There were many heavier-than-air chemicals had observed to be extremely well mixed throughout the atmosphere, in fact, up to an altitude that's called the turbopause, where a certain turbulence breaks down at 105 kilometers. These measurements had been made by captured V-2 rockets from the Germans at the end of the Second World War, and then by United States military and pure science agencies taking grab samples of the air from rockets, shooting a rocket up and capturing some air in a vessel, and then sending the vessel back to Earth to be measured. We could see that many heavier-than-air molecules were extremely well distributed in the air. Carbon dioxide, xenon, krypton, a lot of inert gases, but still to this day, there are people who say that you people are wrong, this was all some kind of a sham, chlorofluorocarbons don't mix in the air. In fact, one of the first seminars that I gave on the subject was in the physics department at the University of Michigan in 1973, I think it was, before we had even published our paper, and then again in 74. And there were full professors of physics at Michigan who said we had to be wrong. Well, it turns out the mixing in this case is not carried out by molecular diffusion against which gravitational forces would prevail because of the density of the gases, but instead by large-scale mixing and turbulence. So there are answers, there was evidence. The controversy just took off and heated up for years and years. 
Slipping ahead to the 1980s, people then began to try to measure whether the ozone layer was indeed diminishing. And in fact, the results were very unclear for 10 or 15 years until the ozone hole over Antarctica was discovered, totally unpredicted, and it revealed that the science that had been developed, starting with Molina and Roland and the rest of us, was too simplified. That instead of the ozone layer being controlled only by gas phase reactions, we now had to take into account gas surface reactions, condensed material like ice particles and ice with impurities in it and so forth, which has created a whole new dimension to the field of atmospheric chemistry, which didn't exist before so that new laboratory techniques had to be developed to create materials to be studied in the laboratory in standard ways, like what is a standard ice particle? And what is a standard ice particle at grossly sub-freezing temperatures where nitric acid might be involved and so forth. So the field got more complicated and I'm very proud of the ability of the people in the field of atmospheric chemistry to find out within months of discovery of the Antarctic ozone hole what the mechanism was that was causing it, why it happened over Antarctica and didn't happen anywhere else. It was just extremely important science. I was not involved heavily in that. I was supervising some of those scientists. I was in Boulder then and I was doing a different kind of research then, but I had to supervise some of the scientists who were doing the work at National Center for Atmospheric Research and Susan Solomon and her colleagues at National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration were completely independent. Jet Propulsion Lab, scientists from England and NASA and so forth, universities. There were perhaps only 150 people in the world who really deserve credit for discovering the mechanism of the Antarctic ozone hole, and my hat is off to them. It was a stunning success for science. It seems that while skeptics can be a pain, they often serve an important purpose. Well, there's another beauty of the way the scientific system and the scientific method works. The scientists are always trying to prove other scientists wrong. So in the case of this large environmental problem, the CFC ozone issue, and even now in the greenhouse effect and you know inadvertent global warming by humans, everybody wakes up every morning trying to find a flaw in the theory. The excitement is to find something new. The excitement for scientists is not to go along like a herd of sheep. Where scientists get their joy and get created with discoveries and making discoveries which are fun is proving other people wrong and coming up with something new. And this is something that I think we have to do a better job of communicating to the public. So in the case of the CFC ozone controversy and now with climate change, believe me, there are scientists out there all the time who are being extremely skeptical. They may not show it by putting a chip on their shoulder in every scientific meeting they go into, but believe me, they're all trying to come up with a different solution. One of the other great things also sounds like in, in listening to you is taking all these bits of knowledge and things you've read. I mean, your love of mathematics comes into it, then this paper you'd read from the 30s on chlorine, all these little pieces of information that you can integrate, synthesize into your work. There are different kinds of science where I think a good memory is really required, and I'm absolutely convinced that environmental science is one of them. As our understanding grows and our questions grow, we realize that these are not just questions of physics and chemistry, but clearly biology is involved. For example, just in atmospheric chemistry, the environmental microbiology is very strongly involved because some of the most interesting and important chemicals in the atmosphere come from microbes in the soils and plants and biochemical reactions in plants. Things like methane, nitrous oxide, 
some of the nitrogen oxides, some other hydrocarbons, and oxygen itself comes from photosynthesis. So on a planetary time scale, the evolution of oxygen in the air, there was always a little bit of oxygen due to the interaction of ultraviolet light on water vapor in the air. But the evolution of oxygen, for the most part, is due to the creation of photosynthesis in the biological world. Anyhow, it's very important to draw bits and pieces of mechanistic understanding and facts from other fields, so to speak, or whatever you know, whatever it interests you. I think this is probably also true in medicine today. There's just so much going on, and there are not that many unifying principles. I've always looked for some unifying principle in studying the environment. I go back to the circuit diagrams from electrical engineering and the way a system is defined with inputs and outputs so that the system is more or less defined by how it deals with an input. What comes out of the system when you put something into it? Is the output proportional to what goes in? If it is, it's a linear system. If the output is not proportional to what goes in, then it's a nonlinear system. And that requires an entirely different mathematical treatment. How big is our ability to predict? So if I look at the, let's say, the atmosphere or the oceans or the soils as a system, and you can classify some of our disturbances as inputs. For example, a natural rainfall is an input, and then what comes out? I've always looked for a way to try to unify a concept, and there is no unifying concept in environmental science. And with no unifying concept, that means in any field like environmental science that we have to be able to draw ideas and evidence from many different examples and try to see what it adds up to, and then determine the limits of our understanding, the limits of our predictability. Because without being able to define a system accurately and mathematically, we know there are going to be limits to our understanding. And on the environmental scene, another variable is what humans are doing. It's not as if humans are sitting here. Our numbers are growing, our patterns of life are growing, are changing. The way we use chemicals, the, the amount of chemicals we use, the way we dispose of them, all of these things are growing and changing. So this is not like a, a laboratory device that you can put up on the laboratory bench and test it. And presumably you'll get the same result if you do the same test tomorrow. With the environment, there are variables in the system that themselves are independent, like life and like human patterns. So in this respect, environmental science is more difficult than laboratory physics. Here's where human minds take different paths. Some minds would be much more satisfied in dealing with a system that can be quantified and in which we can make measurements and see whether our measurement errors are part of the answer. With the environment, it's hard to tell because the system has inherent variability. You might get a somewhat different result the next time you do the experiment. And some minds are not satisfied studying that kind of system. I guess there could be exponential changes and then stability. And making projections about the future. If it's a physical system, we can more or less tell that that physical system will behave the same the next time it's measured. We might measure it a little bit better. But with the environment, if humans are changing their inputs and their pollution, the environment's going to behave differently than we had thought before humans had changed. This is not impossible to study. I'm just using it to illustrate the challenge and to why it's important, and I think fun, to draw from different fields of chemistry, different fields of biology and physics while studying the environment, because you have to, otherwise you'll be tricked. I guess you have to always keep aware of what's going on. 
you have been more recently been doing studies of rice, is that right, and <laughs> methane. There might be some consistency there, but everything else that's going around, human activity would that's also right. factor in. So you that's can't right. really just take the rice and isolate it. Well, that's right, Dorian. This was a totally new field of science for me. Somewhere in the late 70s, I became interested in methane in the atmosphere. It's not clear why we have methane in the atmosphere. If you did a kind of coarse calculation of thermodynamic equilibrium, you would convince yourself we shouldn't have any methane in the atmosphere. In fact, Jim Lovelock and uh, Lynn Margulis and Diane Hitchcock had done that calculation. Anyhow, we decided to try to figure out where methane was coming from, and there had been an early laboratory experiment in Japan by somebody named Koyama who had taken some pots where he was growing rice and determined that methane was coming out of the soil. And if you were to extrapolate his measurements on a few rice pots to the world, it would account for all the methane seen in the atmosphere. Well, that didn't make a lot of sense. So being very naive and a little bit bold, we just decided to go and measure rice. And at the time, I was at Scripps Institution of Oceanography in La Jolla. I didn't even know where rice was grown. So I had heard of the University of California Riverside as being a great agricultural research university and decided, well, I'll go up there to measure emissions from rice. And I had a colleague or two at Riverside with whom I had studied nitrous oxide in the mid-70s, and he informed me that we don't grow any rice down here. Didn't you know that? It's all up around Sacramento, California. So I knew a colleague there, an older man, who had also studied nitrous oxide in the mid-70s, Connie Delwich, whom I really miss. He's now buried in Arlington Cemetery. He helped us to set up our original experiments measuring methane emissions from rice in a research rice field near UC Davis. And we did it really well. It's very low tech, but we put specially designed covers down over a number of rice plants, maybe 20 or 30 at a time, and simply measured how quickly the methane in the chamber increased. And the reason this worked is that no one knew it at the time, but the methane coming out from a rice paddy was not coming out of the soil. It was coming through the rice plants. It turns out that the source of the methane is microbes in the soil, and the gas is then conducted by passages in the rice plant out to the atmosphere. Another way methane comes out of the rice paddies is by bubbles coming out of the soil. So inadvertently, and perhaps by design, our little cover was catching all of the methane coming out of the rice plants, coming out of the bubbles, and then also coming out of the soil through the water that covers the rice, which is how people thought it was coming. Well, it turned out about 90% of the methane comes out of the plants from the soil. About 10% comes in the way of bubbles, and virtually none of it comes out of the soil and water directly. We even developed neat ways to see bubbles coming up. We developed screens which could divert bubbles, so we would have two collectors beside each other one collecting just the gas by diverting the bubbles through screens out of the collector and vice versa. So we got some really nice data. We would cut off the tops of the rice plants and see that we could shut down the flow of methane. We published the results and inadvertently the extrapolation we did for the global source of methane from all the world's rice agriculture turns out to be the number that, that people have settled on 25 years later. But that was totally fortuitous because in the intervening years, we did other measurements, as did hundreds of other people, suggesting that the rice emissions would be far larger or far less than we measured the first time. And it shows that one of the reasons that methane amounts have increased globally 
in the last 50 years and have become a factor in the greenhouse effect is rice agriculture. The fact that rice is the staple food of a very large number of people worldwide. It's the largest crop, is it? It largest is. Crop it's the largest crop. And that because of irrigation, the rice fields are being covered with water, creating ideal conditions to make methane more than they were if they were uncovered. Rice has an evolutionary advantage of being able to grow while the soil is covered with water, whereas weeds cannot for the most part. So that's one of the reasons people like flooded rice fields. And then irrigation has also allowed multiple cropping. In warm and tropical regions, the growing season is year long, so you can grow a rice crop in about 120 days and then grow another rice crop in the next 120 days if you have the water. So irrigation has allowed that. From the point of view of the worldwide atmosphere, that gives you twice as much methane from the same area of land as you would if there was only one crop. So all of these factors have created conditions that rice is an important source of the greenhouse gas methane, and that led us then to study other sources of methane. And now we're studying rice from a different point of view, the release of another kind of chemicals called methyl halides, which are also important in atmospheric chemistry. And these experiments have really taught me how complicated a living system is. Many of our experiments fail, or we get answers far different than we expected, some of which is fun and some of which is annoying. Are you planning to continue your studies on rice in any capacity? I want to study transgenic rice. We're starting to do some experiments now. One of the challenges for science and agriculture in the coming generation is to be able to develop crops that can grow on salt water. The experts who are doing this work have not got there yet. But we would like to study whether the gaseous emissions of genetically modified crops will be any different from their wild counterparts. So I have to learn a lot of genetics in this research, and I have a long way to go. I still like to do physical calculations, though, because we have to be able to understand the system as quantitatively as we can. And once again, working with students, you never know what's going to turn on an individual student. A student may be fundamentally more interested in biology or maybe some goal of protecting the environment. But to be a really successful researcher, that student has to understand the more physical aspects of the system and also become a quantitative scientist. It's mm -hmm. one thing to be emotional, it's another thing to be scientific. So I always like to expose the students to kind of some hard-nosed calculations that will more or less define the system they're studying and show them which variables we have to measure and constrain to be able to make any prediction. Also, it's very important in today's science to be even more broad-minded about what it is that motivates young scientists. We have a much more diverse country than we did one generation ago. Probably the biggest change is the opening of many opportunities for women which did not exist when I was in high school. Even the most capable young women were not tracked, so to speak, into going to college. There were only a couple of professions that were open to them like nursing and teaching. Now, fortunately, that changed a long time ago. We're still not there, and the challenge is mostly in front of us. And one of the answers, I think, is to be able to deal with the individual interests that people have, whether they be different by gender or different by racial and ethnic diversity. We have to be willing to deal with what people are interested in. And I'm confident that almost any field of science can be legitimately portrayed as being accessible to people from different interest groups, or individual minds that behave differently. There are different ways to talk about, for example, cosmology today and astronomy, what it all means, why you should be interested in mathematics, what mathematics can do for you. 
the fun of physics and how it's applied to the world around us. Environmental concerns, I think, are a big motivator. So I really enjoy trying, in fact, to be an amateur psychologist and to hear a little bit about a student's interest and then to try to engage with that student in a way where there's what we call an impedance match. That is, the, the communications is going in both directions rather than just saying something, a talking head that nobody engages with. So I really enjoy that. And I've become so enthusiastic about science, partly because I see that it does engage individual people who otherwise don't look at all the same. But when they begin to think about science, they find that they have much more in common than they did before they began to think about science. I guess all of this you're able to use being a chancellor. Well. It really helps me, except that you know, a modern university, the number of science students is really not the dominant group. In some cases, the lessons I just kind of outlined don't apply. One of the really great things about your field and about atmospheric chemistry, but also environmental sciences in general, is you can see such an interaction with the societal factors, with the politics. Back to when you were talking about this jet that was going to fly in the ozone layer, which didn't end up happening, but that kind of created an awareness of ozone, which then kind of snowballed into the studies that followed your work. It's really fascinating to me that there are all these potential connections between individual fields of science and variations in human behavior, what humans are doing as a race, and then how humans engage individually. I think one of the goals I developed, which may be useful for up-and-coming young scientists to think about, is that when I was a student, I was a little bit afraid of becoming too specialized. I don't know where it came from, but as I went more deeply and deeply into mathematics and electrical engineering and physics, I enjoyed each subject, but somehow I, I had a fear of not becoming specialized. I don't know why, whether I thought I would be more useful if I was less specialized. I don't know, because in fact, the world rewards specialists. The deeper one goes into a study, whether it's literature or physics, uh, the world re rewards specialization, but I was the opposite. I tried to avoid specialization. And one of the reasons I think I was attracted to plasma physics is that everything came together. Atomic physics, physical chemistry, statistical mechanics, electromagnetic theory, electrical circuit theory, with the possibility of doing something useful, namely fusion energy or understanding the ionosphere. So to me, this particular field was a way to gain from everything I had studied without becoming too specialized. Now that's turning out to be valuable because in the kind of science I do now and that I've done over the past few years, atmospheric chemistry and climate change, in fact, while you have to be specialized and knowledgeable in some discipline, you also have to be very broad. In turn, then, this allows me to deal with students in a way that I'm really enthusiastic. Almost whatever the student is interested in, I can be enthusiastic about it because I see how it can fit into a big picture. Specialization is what eventually made it impossible to fix your own car. On the other hand, specialization has led to fantastic human advancement. I mean, for example, at the turn of the 20th century in the United States, a little over 40% of all people lived on farms and were engaged in producing food. Well, at the turn of the 21st century, it was less than 2%. 1.8% of Americans lived on farms producing food. But those people specializing in producing food are pretty darn capable. They not only feed us all, but they feed a lot of the rest of the world. So there are aspects of modern agriculture that may not be totally pleasing, but it's very effective. So I'm not denying the role of specialists. 
individual specialist, for example, in making a discovery in physics or creating a new antibiotic in synthetic organic chemistry or something, they have fantastic benefits. But for me, I have never enjoyed being a specialist. I rather would like to put things together. And yet, there are many times when I've had to go back and plunge deeply into a specialized subject, like spectroscopy, for example, to be able to predict what chemicals are going to react and which ones weren't, which species is metastable, which is stable, what the uh, vibrational rotational spectrum of an individual molecule is to be able to understand its lifetime in the atmosphere. Your studies of chlorine and methane and the effects on the environment have led you to become a specialist, nonetheless. I mean, you've been on the committee that was assigned to study the greenhouse effect. Yeah, I've done a lot of work through the National Research Council and the academies. Uh, we have a marvelous system here where we really do try to bring science to the service of society and answer questions as much as can be done, and also to state what the limits are on our state of understanding. The climate issue does look to be a serious one. But it's difficult to make precise predictions, not only about how the climate's going to change, but about how human behavior will change in the coming generation. This situation is a fantastic example of why specialists from different fields are needed and how we have to communicate with each other. I've also learned that science is wonderful from another point of view. It can be engaged in as an individual in a really lone wolf type operation. For example, a mathematician going so deeply into a subject that there may only be a dozen other mathematicians in the world who can even understand what that individual is doing at first. However, there's also a social side to science where people really have to work together and that those issues tend to attract people who either enjoy working together or who will tolerate it at least. Climate change is one of those issues. So I think the study you were referring to, Dorian, was one the Academy did in a three-week period in May of 2001 at the request of the White House for the, at the time, fairly new administration to kind of understand where the scientific community was on climate change. That's a very so short period, though. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. The Academy usually does studies in an 18-month, 24-month, 36-month time frame. So the officers of the Academy at the time had to decide, first of all, whether they could even honor the request. The White House apparently was very clear that they needed an answer by June 1st, and the formal request came over here in early May to the Academy. And it came in the form of a dozen or so questions. The White House had assigned a number of staff members and some federal government scientists whom they had taken into the White House on a detail assignment, what's called a seconding or detail, to help them to formulate questions, which apparently they were trying to study so that it would determine foreign policy with respect to climate and whether or not the United States government would be party to various international protocols and agreements having to do with climate change. So they sent over to the Academy a list of about a dozen questions and we decided after the panel was formed and, and I was the chairman of it, there were 11 of us I think, we decided that we would stick to the questions and not do any editorializing or, for example, say, well, you should have asked a different question. We just stuck to the questions and did the best we could to provide answers. Some of them were very easy to answer because they were factual. Like, is it true that the greenhouse gases are increasing in concentration in the atmosphere? and How well have they been measured? Things like carbon dioxide and methane and nitrous oxide and chlorofluorocarbons. A couple of other questions were much more difficult and did not have yes and no answers. 
One of them was, is it possible to define a safe level of concentrations of the greenhouse gases? It turned out that this was a turnabout is fair play type question. In 1992, there was an international treaty signed by the United States which pledged that we would not allow a dangerous accumulation of greenhouse gases in the Earth's atmosphere. So this question was kind of a mirror image of it. What is a safe level? And we didn't give a very clear answer. I think we could foresee that if we would really grossly change the Earth's atmosphere quickly, that it would be dangerous. But somewhere in between, there's a mixture of answers. For example, how fast will the concentration increase? And then from the spectrum of sensitivities of the climate system, starting with in the range of what we think is possible now, if the climate system is a little bit less sensitive compared to being extremely sensitive to a perturbation of greenhouse gases, you get one set of answers. And then, if you're in a rich country, as opposed to being in a very poor country, you got a different answer. Rich countries have an ability to respond to climate change. If the climate change is slow enough and small enough, rich countries will be able to respond because they have technology, they have scientific and technically literate people who can understand, deal with devices, deal with information, alternatives to deal with a, a change in the system around us, like rainfall and droughts and so forth and floods, that a poor country, say at sea level, with virtually no scientific and technical human resources, no money, no technology, will be more vulnerable to changes. Where do we stand now in terms of the environment and the sciences studying it? I think we're in a kind of race, a competition, if you will. Can we learn enough about the Earth as a system and what humans are doing to it quickly enough to avert a catastrophe? Or are all of our activities and our population increase, our style of increased consumption and waste of resources going to cause a disturbance faster than we're able to deal with it? And I've felt now for about 25 years that we're in this kind of a race and for our scientific capability and our understanding of what humans are doing to grow fast, we have to engage the brightest minds, we have to have them thinking in broad terms as well as with disciplinary depth and to be able to communicate credibly with the public. That's a bunch of ifs. Communicating credibly with the public is extremely important and it's becoming more difficult, especially in the United States, because of the polarization we have that's political. We have too many people who have a knee-jerk reaction one way or the other when an environmental issue is described. An assumption that it's politically motivated on the one hand, or paid pronouncer or paid advocate speaking on the other hand. So whatever we do, we have to minimize the polarization that we have. It is simply not the case that individual politics have a role in this. Scientists must present the best possible information and when he or she as a scientist goes forward with a value judgment or an action that involves politics or a change in the business community, he or she speaks really only as one individual. We have to be very careful, in my opinion, to separate our views from an individual who is perfectly entitled, like every other citizen of the United States, to have an opinion on political matters or on economic matters. But when we speak as an individual with that kind of slant, we have to admit, I'm no longer speaking as a scientist, and vice versa. So it's tough. Because everybody else in society mixes it up and simply advances their political agenda. We have to be careful to separate them, in my opinion.
but as a, a member of this particular council and the way it was received and then sent out to the public, was there an overriding feeling of the committee itself? In the scientific community at large, there seems a dissatisfaction with the way a lot of the scientific information has been yeah. either interpreted and sent out to the public. This particular study was one of the ones that was part of this uh, uproar. That's right, Dory, and there are all kinds of examples of things that really upset scientists. And in fact, uh, some of the advocates on the side, for example, that there is nothing to be worried about with climate change. A good example would be press stories. The study we did for the White House on behalf of the Academy in 2001 never once mentioned the Kyoto Protocol, the international agreement that through a series of steps would eventually uh, commit every country to limit their emissions of carbon dioxide. That's what I'm referring to. Uh, we never once mentioned it. We did not talk about political action or industrial action. In fact, the questions from the White House never mentioned the Kyoto Protocol. Just stuck to the science. Nearly every press account of our study talked about the Kyoto Protocol. But it had an impact on the... Of course. Non... The, the U.S. not joining, not signing. It, it, it's certainly logical for the public to say, why does this matter? Why do I care? And very logical for, for reporters, electronic and print media, to talk about implications. But it was very annoying to many scientists that no matter what our report said or didn't say, it was all linked to the Kyoto Protocol, when in fact we didn't say a word about the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, the other thing that's, that uh, I wouldn't is uh, that we must deal with, and it's difficult, is uncertainty. As a scientist, a scientist has to admit that no matter what he or she is measuring or calculating, there's some uncertainty in the result. If the final number is 10 kilowatts, for example, the true answer might lie between 12 and 8. So you say 10 plus or minus 2 would be a defensible answer. Well, when you look at a system as complicated as, as climate, there are many uncertainties. And it's very easy for climate scientists to give an hour or two lecture to a smart general public audience. And the only message that the audience will take away is uncertainty. Because we are trying so hard to define the uncertainties and to portray them honestly that sometimes we overdo it. And we don't start with what we do know and build upon it. So in our report, we tried very hard to answer the questions from the White House and to do so in a kind of a hierarchical way. Here's what we know, here's the next level of what's important, and here's what we know, and we know it a little bit less better. And then when you go higher and higher up the hierarchy, for example with climate, the big question is what's going to happen in my locality in a short period of time? In other words, the more spatial resolution and time resolution we can put on a prediction, the better. For example, would it rain in San Francisco in a certain week of the year, 30 years from now? That's not predictable. But a great example of what is becoming predictable was the strong El Nino event in 1997-98, which affected not only California, but all the way through the Midwest of the United States strongly. The people who've been working with El Nino and ocean-atmosphere interactions have done such a great job that they've achieved some predictability a season ahead by measuring the ocean surface temperatures in the eastern tropical Pacific throughout the previous spring and summer. And in the early fall of 97, they predicted that California would have a much wetter than normal winter with more intense storms than normal. 
they were not able to predict any given week of the winter or any given location. But there was value in that prediction. There were people and businesses who cleared out their storm gutters, replaced their roofs, cleared out creeks and stream beds, and they profited. There were some unusually heavy rains that winter. In Laguna Beach, I think it was December 6th or 7th of 97, there was a rainfall that was like six inches in seven hours, just incredible. Half the year's precipitation in seven hours. That's the kind of prediction we're talking about. Communicating, however, what is what we believe reliable now and not reliable, and what the limits of predictions are, is a communications issue as well as one of scientific delineation and limits and honesty. So it's very difficult to communicate what we know about climate change now in terms that people are interested in. What will be the electricity demand in my state in the summertime 15 years from now? Well, electricity demand, you have to know what it's driven by. It's driven by population, the kinds of industry, and in the summertime, cooling. The minimum nighttime temperature, that is, how much does it cool off at night, determines to a great deal the electricity demand for air conditioners in the city in the summertime, as does the maximum daytime temperature and humidity. So to make predictions that are meaningful to people, for example, in the electricity generating business, they have to know what the peak power demand will be because they have to be able to supply the peak power demand, not just the average. That will determine how many generators they need, how much electricity they're shipping in from other states, so when you look at climate science, for example, and what people are interested in, it is meaningful variables like that. How it affects them directly. How it affects them. And this is really a test and a very difficult challenge for our existing computer models and our level of understanding. So scientists are trying to be very careful to not overclaim prediction. And every time they admit to every uncertainties, then people who have various interests on the other side come and say, well, you see, this is all useless. They'll either say no that conclusion. You, yeah, there's no conclusion, this is useless, the problem isn't real because you can't say anything, you're wasting research money, or another response is, well, let's put more money into research but not pay any attention to the results. It's a lot of fun, however, to be able to try to synthesize all of the questions and kinds of research that need to be done, along with trying to understand all the motivations of people. What is it that they need? What is it that they're willing to pay for? I think it's also useful to ask what are people's incentives in this communication challenge. Well, it seems as though it's not just important to communicate to the public, but there could be some work on the governmental end. could use some more scientists in the Congress, for example. You have one plasma physicist there, I think. But That's right, Dr. <laughs> Holt from New Jersey, I think. And well, I think Dr. Ehlers from Michigan is a physicist, Right. a couple of others. Well, on the other hand, our Congress represents the population and for some reason we tend to have most of our legislators being lawyers. So, yeah, it would be nice to have some science required in law school, but I don't think that's ever going to happen. Yeah. Well, it's just a better understanding of the fact that there are uncertainties or there are not any exactitudes in some cases. There have been some very, very brilliant and thoughtful people talk about the stakes that we have now in communication between scientists and the general public that as a society, as a race, we have never depended more on science and technology than we do now. And yet we have fewer people who seem to be interested in it. So it is a real challenge and I don't know whether this interview piece of the Academy website is going to help or not, but every little bit we can do is useful. 
I wish we had more science being portrayed in entertainment, in television and radio shows and, and movies. However, typically the portrayal of science is now as something that's threatening or something that's distant and dehumanizing, and it need not be that way. I know working with my own students, these are real human beings and they're, they're wonderful people, and their goal in working with science is to make science ever more human. And I think that's not only a fine goal, but a realistic one. Since 1863, the nation's top scientists have been honored with membership in the National Academy of Sciences. Today, there are more than 2,500 in the NAS membership, of whom approximately 200 have won Nobel Prizes. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Interviews and invite you to join us again for another inspiring conversation.